Housekeeping. G'day and welcome to Museo Punks, the podcast for the Progressive Museum. I'm Suze Cairns and I'm coming at you straight from Australia, which is why I gave you a little bit of a g'day as our first bit of uh, greeting for the episode. And of course, as always, I am joined by my fabulous co-host, Jeffrey Insko, who is way over in Pittsburgh. Hey, Jeff, how are you doing? Hey, Suze, how's it, how's it going? Good, good. What's going on? Oh, quite a bit, quite a bit. We're going crazy here at my museum in anticipation of a the Carnegie International, which some of you may know as um, one of the uh, premier surveys of international uh, contemporary art that happens once every few years uh, here in Pittsburgh. And uh, 2013 is shaping up to be quite an amazing exhibition. We have 35 artists from all over the world um uh being a part of it and working on some super cool uh pound muse tech stuff so nothing i can really talk about yet but keep your ears oh it's i mean i mean putting stuff out there and saying you have really cool things happening and not being able to tell us about it man that's a little bit jerky jeff (laughs) i'm sorry i'm sorry (laughs) no it just makes it more exciting it's you know getting getting everyone prepped for it so yeah yeah so uh, but you're excited about it i'm excited about it and um it's really great because a lot of the artists have been visiting pittsburgh and um for the past year uh since i've been here and my colleague uh, in my department, our multimedia producer, has been here. Uh, we've been interviewing artists and documenting them as they've come to town and talking with them about projects. So we hope to make as much of that multimedia content available through uh, many different uh, channels. Right. Should you say. What's right. going on down in, uh, down in Australia down with you? Down under? <laughs> um, actually, I mean – Truthfully, I've got my head down into writing. It's this sort of strange process of trying to bring together all of these ideas you've been working with for two and a half years with my PhD. So trying to sort of take all of these loose ends and wrap them up into some sort of actual package that makes sense. In some ways, it's not dissimilar, I would guess, to what um, curating an exhibition is like in terms of working out how you want to tell the story and what the story you need to tell is and who are the people you need to include and what are the things that, you know, what are the objects that need to be within and what are the ones that can be left out or sort of left on the blog in my case. So it's sort of an interesting process of trying to resolve something that at some stages seems much bigger than you are and then trying to bring it all in. Yeah. So you, I mean, your your creative output must be insane because you 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 you're blogging and you're writing the the thesis um do you ever sleep sometimes although i have got into a habit of dreaming the phd and dreaming blog posts in fact when i did my honors paper which is a mini research paper and i probably shouldn't say this on the podcast but once i dream i actually dreamed one of my paragraphs and i woke up in the morning and i remembered this paragraph and i went and wrote it down so at least once i've been known to actually creatively dream sections of my work i don't think that's strange at all i think a lot of creative (laughs) types have have ideas and inspiration come to them when when they're completely removed from um you know what they're doing i know some of my you know uh favorite kind of 
professional inspirational uh things have come to me when i mow the lawn for some reason whenever i'm mowing the lawn like i have this idea bubble <laughs> pop up really i think a idea. lot of people get that from being out in nature so if you know mowing the lawn is in itself sort of a, it's a meditative act you have to concentrate in a particular way but you're out in nature it, yeah. it kind of makes sense yeah definitely definitely <laughs> so hey we've been doing this show now for six episodes and that means we've been doing it for six months can you believe that I know. I was thinking about that just the other day that we have, you know, half a year of this, which is so cool. Yeah, definitely. How do you think we're doing? <laughs> um, I'm enjoying it and yeah. I, I hope you're enjoying it. I, I'm kind of interested in whether people at home are enjoying this as well. I mean, to me, this is great, but I'd love to know what other people think. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I'm, I'm having a good time and it's really great to to chat with you every month and also the the amazing brilliant people that we have working in the sector um totally i always come away with different thoughts from what i was expecting i sort of you go into a show going ah i think that's what i'm going to come away thinking about and then i walk away having spoken to someone thinking no that's i'm I'm seeing things differently and that's a really cool thing to get out as a host as well yeah um Speaking of seeing things differently, I, I wanted to touch base with you about something before we get into the meat of this month's episode. Okay. And, and that is, have you been paying attention to um, what the Cooper Hewitt has been doing with uh, acquiring Planetary? I absolutely have. Um, I'm, in fact, this is... This has been really useful for my PhD because there were a few ideas that I wanted to talk about in my research that I hadn't been able to quite find an example of. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly um, along comes Cooper Hewitt with this lovely gift to me for my PhD. Um, (laughs) So so for those listeners who who haven't might not know or haven't been following along, Cooper Hewitt um, acquired its first piece of code. Um, and it's uh, an iPad app called Planetary, um, which um, basically visualizes collections, not museum collections. It was originally developed for music, I believe, right? Um, right. And so they acquired it, and as a way to preserve it or conserve it, they released it as open source on GitHub. Right. What I think is really interesting, I've actually been writing, I did a little bit of writing on this, and one of the um, people who commented on my blog post raised is himself a conservator. And so one of the reasons that Cooper Hewitt have done this is for conservation or preservation purposes. But um, my conservator is sort of saying, well, I don't know that we can call this conservation because it seems more like maintaining the life of or revitalizing and repurposing, which is not quite the same he thinks as conservation. And I Hmm. think that's this really interesting idea that this becomes, this is a living object, as as Cooper Hewitt have put it. So whether we need even a different vocabulary for what we're talking about then. Yeah, uh, it certainly is a lot to unpack. Um, But I, I think, I think it's, uh, it's, it's gonna. It's transformative for the industry, mm. I think, um, especially um, this idea of of um, opening it in a way that saying right. saying continue this and and relying on outside um, outside uh, developers to kind of maintain this and 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 move it forward. Right, absolutely. I mean, I guess museums have always relied on external external expertise in terms of pulling in contractors and those sorts of things. But this is quite different because it is about um, 
I, I've sort of nicknamed it cooperative conservation, which mm. is, you know, how you sort of bring other people in to talk about these sorts of things and to preserve these sorts of things. Yeah, definitely. I'd, I'd love to uh, to hear what conservators have to say about this as well. Um, I'm feeling like this could be a thing for a future episode. Could be. Could right. be. <laughs> Um, so what about this episode? What, what are we going to be tackling? Well, I'm so excited about this episode. So something you might not know about me, Jeff, is that my very first degree was in journalism. Um, and so I've been fascinated by media all of my life. My dad was a newsreader. I grew up with the news. Um, and one of the things I'm really interested in in the sector is if and how the internet is forcing museums to become media organisations in different ways. And fortunately, we have two really interesting guests who are helping us unpack that. We do. Uh, we'll be talking to Paul Schmelzer from The Walker, uh, who heads up... Um their web team and the uh, web editor there um, does great work. Um, their web presence is is fantastic, um, and we're super fortunate to also speak with Sri uh, Sri Nevison from the Met, uh, who is there the new uh, chief digital officer there at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Right. And we were so lucky to get to talk to Sri. I think he was maybe his third week into the job when we interviewed him, which is a really interesting time to talk to someone coming into that position. Yeah, definitely. And especially um, to, to hear his take on, on the CDO role and, right. and what that means, um, not only for museums, but for um, uh, institutions as a whole. You know, this idea of, of, a, of a leadership position that bridges um, you know, the IT and the marketing uh, in a way that, that marries them effectively, I think is really, really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. But rather than us going on and telling you how interesting these guys are, let's, let's hear from them. Paul Schmelzer is web editor at the Walker Arts Centre. He's the former editor of the Minnesota Independent. He's the first online journalist in Minnesota history to win either a Society of Professional Journalists Page One Award or the University of Minnesota's Frank Premack Public Affairs Journalism Award. His writings on art, politics and activism have appeared in Adbusters, Alternate, Artforum.com, Cabinet, City Pages, Ode, The Progressive, Utney Reader, and also on his own blog, Eye Teeth. Uh, Paul, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Nice to hear from you guys. It is such a pleasure to be talking to you. Now, we're talking a little bit about what it's like for museums to be acting as media organisations. And you're now the web editor at the Walker Arts Centre. But before taking on that position, you were the editor of the Walker's print publication. How different are the two roles? Um, right now, they're very different because we have switched um, more or less to entirely online editorial content. We do have a, a magazine at this point, but it's uh, sort of reverted back to what it was early on in my years at the Walker back in 98 and 99, where it was kind of a promotional vehicle where it would be kind of like the, um, the church bulletin that had all the events being promoted. And through my time at the Walker in those early years, we kind of revamped that to be more of a um, contextual marketing device where we had articles and interviews and things like that. Well, since the website has gone so well and we have so much um, sort of narrative and contextual um, content online, we don't need it as much in the, in the paper pulp uh, realm, which is quite expensive. So that, that publication is now uh, more of a marketing vehicle, whereas the website is kind of doing all the storytelling. 
Um, but at that, back in the, the old days, it was uh, um, kind of, it's kind of interesting thinking back because in my years at The Walker, I was here for nine years before leaving for four years and then coming back two years ago. Uh, in those early years, we had a, a magazine that, um, as I just said, kind of evolved to be more of this um, storytelling vehicle. And then blogs kind of came along and our new media department um, jumped on that and I kind of volunteered to be editor of the blogs. So we just had these ways of kind of democratizing the walker, right? um, allowing staff to tell stories from their own point of view, kind of having a multiplicity of voices about the walker rather than just one institutional voice. Um, and that kind of all paved the way for our new site launched um, – year and a half, two years ago, which kind of um, picks up where all that left off. It seems like it's just a, a good place to uh, explore the ideas that surround the art, as well as talking about everything we present, um, but doing so in a way that's more engaging and uh, pays more respect to the content rather than just treating it as an event to be marketed for a limited audience that can actually come here. Right. Um, Paul, can you talk a little bit about the Walker's approach to to that content and as it relates to um, you know, uh, kind of a news format, one that seems to be very responsive to the world around the institution um, and how, how it can enable art to be more relevant in people's lives? Well, that last part really, um, for me, is key. It comes from the Walker's mission. We've got a kind of a long mission, but the, the end of it, I should actually look it up here on our, on our link's website. The first part is about being a catalyst for the creative expression of artists and the active engagement of audiences. So we're doing both of those things, which is um, having artists speak, having a lot of voices of artists, but also we're really respecting our audiences who are online a lot and are reading the Huffington Post and getting their news from like multiple news sources. So we're kind of being responsive in that environment by um, creating new content on our own, but also um, culling some of the best of what we find in the art media around the internet. But the second part of it is really, really why I'm involved with the arts is to is because I believe that there is a relevance to what we do. It's not just, um, I don't believe the Walker should be a place purely where you go and uh, ponder um, exalted objects. Mm. I think really we need to um, have a, a contemporary art institution, especially needs to be responsive to the world and, and kind of tease out if it's not already evident how those art objects and uh, in the collection respond to current events or came out of certain historical moments or the headlines today. Um, and the second part of our, I have this open, our mission here is that, um, we're multidisciplinary, it says all that, but the last part is that we examine the questions that shape and inspire us as individuals, cultures, and communities. And for me, that's like a green light for the site. It's like, wow, I can really like, I can talk to anybody about anything as long as it's sort of related to the, the contemporary art that we present. So that's been pretty exciting for me. Um, yeah, absolutely. I feel like I'm part, part of your question now. <laughs> <laughs> No, that's okay. I mean, uh, do you think that um, obviously the Walker um, takes this approach and does a great job at it? Do you think? Do you think museums as a whole need to be more responsive in this way? I think museums in a whole, as a whole, need to be more responsive. I'm not so sure about in this way for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that the Minneapolis Institute of Arts here in town just hired a respected journalist. Um, 
Tim Gearing, who's worked at one of the monthly Metro magazines um, as their brand narrator. Now, I don't really like that terminology, but um, I think that it's a, it's a nod to the fact that they understand that they need to be more responsive online in terms of um, making their work more relevant to people and, and telling stories rather than always marketing. Mm-hmm. Um, as the person who kind of does it as a walker, um, I feel like it's a pretty special institution that can do it. Um, it requires a lot of time and resources and the right person, if I can toot my own horn. But I just think that there's capacity issues that a lot of institutions might not be able to um, meet uh, if they're trying to do the same thing. Actually, it's interesting that you talk about capacity issues because I think one of the things that really strikes me is this is a really different pace of working compared to a lot of museum work. Um, what kind of workflow, what kind of content workflow do you put into this then? And how broad is that organizationally? Workflow in terms of like management structures or, or what do you mean, technology? Um, really, how, how, I suppose how you, if you're talking about that this isn't necessarily the sorts of thing that all organizations would be able to do, I imagine you've got structures in place that make it possible. So both technology content workflows, but also institutional workflows. Well, yeah, I mean, it's um, we're still kind of working on some of that now a year and a half in, um, and it's kind of my job to come up with uh, some of the um, some of the methods and, and technological tools to keep people apprised of what I'm working on and what we're doing as an institution. Um, kind of, I have, I think one of the things that was appealing to me uh, for this job with the Walker when they, when they were hiring for it was that I had this institutional history. Um, I had both a journalistic and sort of marketing mind from my past lives and also my experience as a blogger. So I think that they kind of trust me to sort of identify a lot of good stories and to sort of know what fits for the walker and what doesn't. But it's not like I'm totally going solo. We have uh, the audience engagement and communications team that's uh, the department I'm in. An interesting thing, just a side note, one interesting thing about my job is that I don't fall into the marketing department or the PR department, which typically a web editor would if it's somebody doing content like this at a museum. Um, so I report directly to Andrew Blauvelt, who's the head of this big overarching department called audience engagement and communication, which includes everything from PR and marketing to education, to photography and design and, and me. So there's a subgroup of his department that meets with me, um, regularly to kind of go over what content's coming up and what we need to be sure to hit and what we won't. But mostly it's me reporting to them about what I'm doing and, um, I'm getting a little guidance along the way. Do you feel that, Paul, that structure of, of you kind of reporting um, directly kind of to the, to the top kind of infuses you and, and, and by extension the website within the organization in a way that um, had, it, had you be in marketing or kind of siloed off in, in some other area, um, you wouldn't get the same effect? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. That's a good question. I would, I would hope so. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think that um, if I was a marketing person, as I was in my my former life here, I was the associate director of marketing and, and managing editor. Um, I think that that people see you through that lens of you need to help promote our events. Mm-hmm. And I think in this role, they know that I have that in mind, but they also know that I'm sort of beholden to you know a content strategy and an editorial vision that might transcend just our programs. Right. And I think key to that is kind of understanding that we have many audiences and a lot of them are scholars and people overseas as well as people right in Minneapolis and St. Paul. 
So, I mean, if we, if people kind of are understanding that we can talk broadly, we can talk to a broad audience, I should say, about the stuff we care about and kind of have this contemporary art diaspora that we can connect with rather than just local audiences who might come and buy tickets. Yeah, absolutely. I think that idea of editorial vision is a really interesting one when talking about the Walker site because obviously one of the big features is the art news from elsewhere section and I think lately there have been a lot of conversations in the sector about museums curating the internet and you're one of the examples of people who are actually out sort of searching for external content and pulling it in. Can you talk a little bit about this process and also how it sort of how it sits within the institution? Um, I think it sits pretty well with the institution. I, I don't know incredibly well like how many people here are reading our site every day, but I do hear kind of anecdotally that people are kind of checking in to see what's going on in the art world, um, which I think is kind of – I feel really good about that because I'm not really selecting the biggest stories to include in Art News from Elsewhere. It's really – I mean, I'm, I hate to use the word curating because it suggests a level of education and experience that I don't have, but really I'm I'm – hand aggregating stuff that I think I, I guess I'm hand hand aggregating with an eye for my personal vision, which is kind of balancing a lot of imperatives from the local and the global to the multidisciplinary, since we have all these different disciplines represented here. And also just not always catering to um, the big, the big New York times type outlets, but also kind of, you know, giving, using our platform to, to give underrepresented art forms, a little time or to um, uh, kind of give small sites their little moment in the sun, maybe even not drive that much uh, traffic, but kind of to honor sort of the ecosystem of contemporary art and, and thinking rather than to always just go to the big corporate sites, you know? Yeah. Very cool. Um, I know that's one, you know, personally, my, my favorite part of, of the website is, is that area kind of brings in the outside world. Um, uh, you know, we're, we're talking about, museums as media organizations and the term media is itself kind of inherently vast right so can you elaborate on how the walker itself maybe navigates the nuances between various media for example social media or you know kind of more scholarly writing or even online art objects is there some some way that the the institution kind of navigates all of that kind of online digital content <sighs> that's a good question and kind of a difficult one even to get my head around um i know that we're working with with new media where our new media department is working on taking some of the ideas from the website and applying it to other initiatives like the um getty funded online scholarly initiatives project um which is basically we've created a we're creating a living catalog that kind of in a more scholarly way tries to do what i'm doing on the homepage. so it's trying to sort of um further invigorate objects or works in our collection, which for us can include film and uh, performing arts, but to kind of make it more relevant by, by commissioning writers to have them write about it and to link it up to other things. Um, I don't, I'm not a part of that project, so I don't know how it's going, but it seems like it's kind of taking some of these ideas into a different realm. And I hope that some of those ideas then come back because I think they're kind of doing some technological planning that will change just the interface that I use for, for articles and slideshows and things like that. I'm afraid I don't have a better answer than that for you. I mean, it's kind of an interesting area to think about because social media tends to be, um, I think, largely about marketing, but also about relationships and yeah. occasionally about scholarship. And 
and I guess I don't have a good answer for how that interfaces with our online collections versus our website. It's just, mm-hmm. it's just kind of all is, and we're, we're sort of feeling our way along. Yeah. I, I you know, I think, I think every museum is kind of doing the same thing, feeling their way along and figuring out what works and, and, um, kind of experimenting as, as we go. Um, so, but you know, it, it seems though that the Walker isn't afraid of, isn't afraid of humor, you know, right? The cat video festival or, or politics, even the, the great project, uh, defiant typeface, um, which I'll drop a, a link in the show notes to, do you see this institutional willingness to kind of maybe ruffle feathers or take positions, um, as key to your online success? I do. And it's kind of part of my, my personal, um, happiness with my job is being able to do that. Cause that's just the kind of person I am. Um, yeah, I think it is. I think that I was really proud of the Walker for having a position on, um, same sex marriage. Um, there's a amendment before voters last November that was, uh, would, uh, basically ingrain in the constitution. Um, uh, what do you call it? Just traditional marriage. They would call it, I guess the, mm-hmm people from the other side <laughs> well, right. came out on the right side of that as I see it and made a public statement about it. And that mm-hmm. makes for good content for me. And it kind of underscores the fact that I'm on the right track when I can show stuff about typefaces that are supposed to protest NSA spying. And we're going to do more of that. We had a, we did have a series last year called lowercase P artisan politics, which was basically all about that. And I, I'd like to launch a series in the coming year um, of artist op-eds where we can, get some big name artists to write for us um, opinion pieces on whatever they are passionate about in the news these days. And, and that, that all of course comes from my belief. And I think the Walker's belief that artists have a, a valuable and important role to, to play in contemporary affairs and also a voice that should be heard rather than just a icing on the cake kind of thing. I think a lot of people of course think the arts are um, the playground of the rich or not very integral to our life, but I, I would like to help change that perception. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting, this idea that it is an editorial role, that you're not just, I suppose you've got a journalist background yourself, but you're not necessarily doing all the writing, that you are seeking um, people, even from external, sort of to the organisation to do that writing for you. How much do you think you can integrate those different voices? Is I mean, you talked about blogging before and the difference, you know, the democratisation of the voice. Do you think that this is sort of a continuation of that? I do. I think that it's really important to have outside voices because, I mean, it's a platform that we created. It's really, um, meaning, I mean, obviously a platform is just a place where things can happen. So it's if we can bring others to share in the collective, um, you know, definition or makeup of the walker, that's great. So we're going to be doing more of that. I, you know, now got a budget for, for freelance that's, you know, pretty good and I'm bringing in journalists and hoping to bring in people from outside of the arts even. Cool. You know, can we have uh, scientists writing for us about, about related things? It wouldn't just be scientists writing about science. That's not really relevant to what we're doing, but mm. yeah. Awesome. So Paul, when, when you and I last spoke, it was on the now retired static made podcast and shortly after it was shortly after the launch of the Walker's new editorial slash media focus site. So it's been some time since then. Can you speak to any of maybe the strategic shifts or significant modifications that you've made along the way to kind of stay not stay current maybe with the larger media landscape or things that you've noticed since you launched that, that you're kind of modifying to, to, um, uh, to 
create what is now the the Walker site? Yeah, um, certainly has been a learning process. Um, some of which is building the airplane in flight, uh, yeah. and, and now further down the road, I I think that one thing I would like to do is um, have some content that is more um, removed from events at the Walker. I mean, in our top story section, it's always a kind of balancing act of, you know, we really do have to represent stuff that we're doing because we need to sell tickets and raise awareness. But also I'm really interested in thinking about these other audiences that I mentioned that are all around the world and kind of are simpatico with what we're doing and, you know, maybe can be part of a brain trust to help think about some of these things. So I'm really trying to develop more series that can engage with the broader world of ideas um, while still making sure to really be about, have a lot of content that's about what we're doing on site. Um, I guess that's not really a, a super strategic answer, but it's just something I keep thinking about is that, how do I keep that balance and it's expand into content that's not in service to the Walker as much. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other big thing is just how do I, how can this be sustainable for me? It's a, it's such a huge task and a limited staff doing it. And I need to figure out, how to marshal resources in the most efficient way to keep it going. Yeah. I think that's a really interesting problem to sort of pinpoint as we, as we wrap up, because I think one of the things that's really interesting to me about the website is that it seems like it actually does take a significant amount of work, but it also seems to be incredibly valuable work. Um, where can people find you, Paul, if, if they're interested in sort of continuing this conversation or looking a little bit more at what you do and sort of being in contact with you? Where can people find you online? Um, you can find me on Twitter. It's a good place to reach me. I'm at iTeeth, which is the letter I and then the teeth like in your mouth. Or you could find me at my blog, which is iTeeth.org, which is E-Y-E-T-E-E-T-H dot O-R-G. Fantastic. Um, Paul, thank you so much for, for being on the show. My pleasure. Thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Sri Srinivasan is Chief Digital Officer at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, where he explores new digital opportunities for the museum and leads its digital media department. Prior to joining the Met, Sri became the first Chief Digital Officer at Columbia University in 2012, where he had been a professor of digital journalism at Columbia Graduate School of Journalism since 1993, and also served as Dean of Student Affairs from 2008 to 2012. In 2012, he became a blogger for CNET News, uh, writing the Sri Tips blog about social and digital media. He is also a co-founder, past president, and current board member of the South Asian Journalists Association, comprised of more than 1,000 journalists of South Asian origin who are based in the U.S. and Canada. In addition, uh, Sri has been named one of Pointer's 35 most influential people in social media, one of AdAge's 25 media people to follow on Twitter, one of SPJ's top 20 journalists to follow on Twitter, one of onlinecolleges.net's 50 most social media savvy professors, and the list goes on and on. Uh, his Twitter feed is at twitter.com slash Sri, and his tech tips are on Facebook at facebook.com slash Sri Tips. Sri, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us today on Museo Punks. I'm delighted to be here, though I wish you had uh, dropped about half or three quarters of that intro. Thank you. (laughs) 
<laughs> well, it is a it is a, a, a amazing resume you bring to the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Um, so let's talk first about your position there, um, Chief Digital Officer. This is a position that a lot of us are hearing about um, in the museum space, and it seems to be quite a new type of position in the museum sector. T- talk to us a little bit about what it is that you're doing, what you're focusing on um, there. Sure. Uh, so just just kind of as background, I've uh, had what I call a 30-year one-way love affair with the Met. I grew up a couple of blocks away from the Met. I went to school a block away from the Met. And so when I had this opportunity to uh, uh, to kind of learn more about this uh, position, I jumped at it. You know, if you've been in love with something for 30 years and they call you, you have to take the call. And then with your wife's permission, you carry on. And that's uh, what I did. And uh, the uh, this title of chief digital officer is something we're seeing now more and more in the world of, of uh, all kinds of corporations as well as nonprofit institutions uh, in, in academia where I was one of the uh, one of the few people with that title um, we're seeing now more people get that um, we're seeing uh, lots of big companies as well as smaller places get that many people are confused what it what it is exactly and then we can talk about what it is at the at the Met um, the idea is that uh, a chief digital officer can help an institution think about digital in ways that uh, haven't been part of the DNA of the institution or they haven't had a chance in the regular structure to think about it. So I tell people I can't help uh, fix the laptops or think about the Wi or, or, or fix the Wi-Fi, but I can help think about how a museum or an institution should be using Wi-Fi in a strategic manner. So it's more of a kind of strategy planning uh, role um, as well as a doing role in the sense that you've got to think about uh, how do you actually connect what is happening at a place like a museum with the rest of the uh, rest of the planet. And um, I believe that the future of museums is really connected to this idea of bringing together the uh, the physical and the digital, the in-person and the online. And uh, Tom Campbell, our director here at the Met, um, has been encouraging me to think about that, that how do we make sure that we can build a kind of virtuous circle of people who uh, see all the amazing things that are happening online and say, hey, let me go. If this is all what's happening online, I've got to go experience it in person. And then all the people who come in person say, well, I wish I could be here 24 hours a day, but I can't. I have to go home. And what can I find online which will help me keep that, uh, uh, that experience going? So that's sort of what I'm focused on. We have here um, several units within digital media. We have a team for, focused on video. We have a team focused on social media, uh, the web, email. Uh, building apps for our various digital products, um, as well as building mobile apps. We also have a media lab that looks at what the future of the museum uh, will be like. So we're playing here with things like 3D printers, as well as Google Glass. And these are all part of this idea that things are changing and the museum world needs to change along with it. 
It's actually really interesting to hear you sort of talk about that that change and the pace of change because I think one of the things with your background I see that journalism and social media are both incredibly responsive and so sort of grounded in the real time whereas it often feels that museums run at their own kind of slower museum time as we sort of nicknamed it in the sector. Does it matter if these different areas of the institution are working at different speeds or at different levels of responsiveness or or does the whole institution need to be sort of working at a much more responsive level? Well, coming from academia where the speed might be, you know, even slower than museum speed, uh, I I am used to kind of dealing with the change in ways that uh, the speed is a is a concern, and you you you're very familiar, I'm sure, with the with the saying, "I'm all for progress." It's change I cannot stand. And what what I think about is that uh, the Met, uh, which uh, has a long term vision of the things that it's doing, because uh, you know we have art here that's five thousand plus years old, and we're we want this everything here to be available to people 5,500 years from now, 5,000 years from now, 50 years from now, all of that. So that, that this idea that everything has to be super fast and be done um, uh, Im- immediately, I can understand why the, that, that museum time has a, uh, a real place in the success, success of museums. But then how do you balance that with the need to keep employees who are excited about doing things faster as well as consumers who want to uh, experience things faster. Sri, would, would you consider museums to be media organizations? In some ways they absolutely are. And um, I think of my job as uh, storytelling. Uh, how do we tell the stories of these individual 2 million, whatever the number is, pieces of art, uh, in compelling ways, uh, in engaging ways. And so in, in that sense, um, my, my work as a journalist and media person uh, certainly ties into it. But at the same time, there is a, a you know, art is also not as quantifiable, um, the ways in which it can be seen and experienced. There's something absolutely magical and mystical about sitting in front of or standing in front of a painting or a piece of sculpture that um, is doesn't lend itself to the traditional metrics of media, the traditional ways in which media is done. So um, I, I want to kind of find the right balance in that, but uh, but I can see the connections. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're sort of talking in some ways about a a digital parallelism, which is an idea that we've sort of spoken about a little bit in the sector is these sort of online and on-site experiences that speak to one another. Um, I mean, you have lots of different tools at your disposal. The Met has lots of different tools. You're talking about 3D printing and the experimentation with Google Glass and those types of things. But how do you then work out which is the right, which is the right jo- a tool for the job? I mean, which is the sort of thing that needs social media? How, how do you decide how to pass out your different um, tools for the jobs you want to achieve? I, I think that's you've you've uh, outlined one of my 
tasks for uh, the next couple of years is to think about uh, think about that. And I should also say, by the way, that one of one of the slightly um, irritating things to me um, since I've since my job was announced, and I'm sure very irritating to people who work at the Met, is that people said, "Oh, now the Met's going to be digital," and it's absolutely not the case. It's been right digital for a long time. And when you have a big team of people here already, and we have 20 million people who come to uh, access our um, our website, as well as, uh, uh, you know, um, almost a million people on Facebook and all these other numbers. So I'm here to say that I'm just learning. We're talking on day 21 or something for me at the Met. Uh, there's so much I need to learn. Um, I think they were keen to bring in someone from outside the museum space, and uh, part of that means you come. Somebody comes in with a lot of ideas, but also someone has to come in and be open to new ideas. One of my roles as chief digital officer, both at Columbia and now at the Met, is to be chief listening officer. Listen to uh, folks outside of digital to all the other departments to say, how are are there ways in which we can make your work smarter, better, more efficient. And that's been absolutely part of what I've been doing these few days is just listening to various parts of the museum and see what they're doing and what they're not doing. Hmm. Let's, so while we're on the, the track of listening, um, let's talk a little bit about data. Um, so it seems that museums are getting better and better at collecting data, you know, through creative membership programs or maybe back-end analytics of, of their uh, interactives. How can, as c- coming from outside the museum space, how can museums become better at utilizing this data? You know, um, what indicators should they be looking at and what questions should we start to be asking of the data to kind of um, move, move things in, in, a, in a positive direction? Well, I think, first of all, just collecting, identifying what the data sets should be and and making sure you're collecting them. Uh, just today, I was looking at uh, the Indianapolis Museum of Art has a fascinating dashboard. I don't know if you've seen it. It's just yeah. dashboard.imamuseum.org. Yeah. And um, uh, it, it's kind of a... It, so it's not enough just to collect it, but also to share it and and kind of see how we then uh, can therefore trigger more better use of the yeah, use of the data. And so I would I would love to see what museums can be doing about being transparent, about being accessible on information. Over uh, in at Columbia, one of the things we worked on that hadn't been really done before was. On our brochure, which published all the kind of you know uh, come study at Columbia Journalism School, we we actually broke down the number of scholarships, money th- uh, and the money we give out, and application numbers. All of these, which were always collected by universities, but not shared in any way uh, that was useful to anybody, or people didn't even know that it would be of interest. Uh, that's the kind of thing that I'd love to see. Uh, all museums doing more of. And since you're familiar with this dashboard, what is your sense of that? And have other places done the equivalent of that? Uh, Go ahead, Suze. (laughs) I was just going to say, there's definitely a few institutions that are taking the the dashboard approach. Um, I think from the technology end of the sector, there's a huge interest in transparency, but I don't know whether it's actually translating 
through across the sector or not. I think there are some institutions, I think the more innovative institutions are very interested in transparency, but I'm not entirely sure sort of to what extent that is translating. Jeff, where do you think that's that's going? Yeah, I think I would I think I would agree. I, I definitely think there's a there's a trend uh, toward transparency, but I think we're not seeing the implementation of that for a number of reasons. I think I think infrastructure wise, um, it takes a lot uh, to kind of build that foundation of systems to be able to support that level of transparency. Um, and I I you know speaking from experience at my museum you know we would we'd love to have a, a a dashboard and we're working toward taking the steps to kind of make that a possibility down the road um so yeah i think it's i think it's a lot there are a lot of things that are coming uh together to to make that happen for some institutions and then prevent it for others yeah absolutely i mean even just being a different way of thinking and i think that's three when i'm hearing you talk about things like transparency, about those sorts of um, ideas, what I feel is it is this really different sort of cultural approach or, or different way of thinking through the problems from the way I think museums have often sought to sought to solve their problems. And I think one of those questions that comes up that has these sort of similarities between what traditional news organisations have been going through and what museums have been going through is this idea of sort of a change of voice from the uni- unidirectional broadcasting voice to something that enables people to speak back with social media in very public ways. And I wonder whether things like these sorts of changes are actually actually changing the institutional fabric if you talked about the institutional dna before does something like the capacity for the public to speak back actually change the nature of an institution or is it just quite surface well it's this is something that i think museums which you've kind of outlined <laughs> the the way that uh, they have dealt with with this but i i believe that there are places where They've been able to change, but um, there are others where it hasn't quite happened. And um, well, just as with universities, it's because uh, there are certain they're set in their ways of doing things. And before this job, I used to spend a lot of time thinking about the nonprofit world and uh, giving advice to nonprofit boards. And a simple thing that I would point out is that boards spend all their time thinking about the fiscal books as they should and thinking mm. about the physical plant as they should. But I would ask uh, folks on the board and just say, you know, anybody here pay close attention to the website? And uh, most times people hadn't been to the website in weeks or months. Some of them are starting to have technology committees and other ways to do it. But to just think that Yes, the physical plant and the phys- fiscal stuff is so important, but equally important is the is the website. And it also happens within curators, educators, professors. These uh, the the um, the mission driven part of institutions. They're not paying enough attention to the digital side. I mean, I'm speaking very generally here. There are obviously lots of folks who do, but how do you get them excited to understand that this all this stuff is going to help them, not distract from them, not dilute what they're doing? Those are the things that we need to be thinking about. Uh, Sri, I don't know if you've 
had a chance to see this article that's been circulating around the the interwebs. Uh, Elizabeth Merritt, a previous guest on the on the podcast from the Center of uh, for the Future of Museums wrote a post last week about museum jobs that didn't exist 10 years ago. Um, obviously, Chief Digital Officer kind of fits into that category. Um, and the sector is undoubtedly experiencing a shift in its types of leadership roles. Um, what words of advice would you give to museums who realize the need for a position like a Chief Digital Officer but might not have the resources required to add such a high-level position? Yeah, I've uh, uh, I've been thinking about this as a uh, uh, because several museums, in fact, have been in touch and asked about what this means and and, and how. Well, first of all, I think uh, nobody needs to jump in and think about having this until you've got a lot of your other systems uh, really uh, humming along. Uh, mm. I would I would spend my money on making sure your technology team that does more infrastructure and traditional technology is really good and doing the things you need before you worry about this, for example. You know, so that's the, there, are, there are other things where a place like the Met can afford to have someone in this position because they have, uh, you know, a, a large uh, um, uh, kind of plan on how they, how they are approaching uh, their work. And, I haven't seen a list of other institutions that have a chief digital officer, and if they do, I'd love to, if you have that, or if you know of some, that would be great. I have seen since, uh, in, in the last couple of months, some of uh, some institutions creating roles like director of digital strategy, director, uh, you know, th- those kinds of wordings. Um, my only hesitation with some of those roles is that if you don't have any actual operational work or responsibility, then people will, may not take you as seriously or the people who you want to attract may not be as interested in uh, doing a role when all you're doing is sitting around all day kind of thinking and providing advice when you can't actually do anything. And that's something that I would be uh, aware of. Uh, what do you folks think about that particular issue? Yeah, I think uh, I think it's I think it's tough because I, I think a lot of institutions are are recognizing the need um, again. But it, I really like what you said about having the infrastructure in place first, getting getting the foundation laid um, in order to be able to do uh, you know any, anything creative or uh, these kind of um, projects that make use of that technological infrastructure in interesting and compelling ways. Um, but I definitely think, I, I mean, I, I, I've been, I, the people I've talked to that kind of serve in, in the roles that, that are, that are typical, the kind of, you know, web and digital media manager type level roles. Um, I, th- I definitely see a, a leadership role emerging for this type of thing. Uh, from an engagement perspective, less of nuts and bolts of infrastructure, but from from a creative engagement type of uh, uh, perspective. Yeah, absolutely. I think being in also being in the leadership team as opposed to um, not being in the leadership team is is maybe where I think the shift can and is happening and sort of needs to be happening. It's, I'm I'm not necessarily sure. The particular type of role, I think that can change for different institutions of different sizes. But I think having someone who's aware of what's happening digitally in the leadership team is a really significant thing. Yeah. 
So, Sri, just kind of finishing up here, um, describe your first couple weeks in in one or two words. I'd say overwhelming, exciting. Um, uh, and, you know, here we have two million square feet, something like that, of this place space. So uh, yeah. tiring is another word. I've been trying to do every day on Twitter and Facebook to post a single image of something that's caught my eye. And that sounds so easy, you know, when everybody's tweeting all the time. But even finding that, making sure it's accurate, making sure, you know, the, the label I give it is accurate, making sure uh, the, the description is right, uh, connecting it to the website, all of that, I've realized kind of how much work that is. And it's a, it's a lot of fun. But it's something that I need to be kind of uh, carving out time for. And walking through the museum on the early hours before people are here or at night after people are gone is absolutely uh, breathtaking, as you can imagine. Uh, The first time I did it, I was a little nervous. Uh, It was, uh, I was, um, you know, you're afraid you walk by something and what if something falls or breaks and then it's your fault or something comes alive. Which, you know, we laugh about it, but uh, there was that for very first time I walked through the Egyptian gallery, um, I tried to FaceTime with my wife, and uh, who happened to be in India at the time, and just to tell her, look, if, you know, hey, if I disappear, I want this on film. But, <laughs> uh, but it was just this, you know, combination of magical, mysterious, um, exciting uh, process. Um, the other thing that I've I've had to do, and I, I'm sure I made the mistake even on this conversation, is I use the word museum. Uh, I use the word university when I want to say museum. I say the word Columbia when I want to say Met. Yeah. And uh, this is the kind of thing that, you know, 21 years at one place, at one email address, one telephone number is kind of hard to shake off very easily. Mm-hmm. And uh, the good news is that but both places are so special, so professional, so uh, at the top of their game that uh, the transition has been really easy uh, in many ways. Uh, but also just connecting, meeting, trying, trying to meet every, you know, the different parts of the museum. Today we met with the folks who run our uh, multicultural initiative. That's another kind of outreach that museums need to do. And they've been doing that now since, I think, 1998. And it's quite amazing that... Uh, uh, that the resources have been dedicated to that, uh, and more places need to be doing that. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, I know I speak on behalf of Suze and our listeners when we when we say we're super excited to to see what what you do there uh, at the Met. Um, and for listeners who uh, may want to follow along, where can where can they do that uh, online? Well, one thing that we're we're going to be very shortly launching a digital blog uh, at uh, a blog about the digital department and what we do here on right. Medium uh, as part of our blogs initiative. Uh, we are also, um, you know, uh, I'll, I'll try to post things on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, my Twitter handle is at Sri, so it's fairly easy to find um, on and uh, trying to also use the different platforms for different kinds of information. I, I hope all of you are following the Instagram account of uh, the Met. It is really well done. Our digital, our web and social team here led by Eileen Lewis, uh, Eileen Willis and, uh, and Taylor Newby is just a great insight into the museum. And I hope you will uh, follow along and see 
what we're doing. I also want to, I want ideas from everybody who's listening. So please do reach out, email me. My email is also easy. It's three at metmuseum.org, S-R-E-E at metmuseum.org. If you have ideas on things I should be looking at or things you you think we should be trying more of, I would love to know. So please, please reach out. Fantastic. Shri, thank you so much for talking to us. This has been incredibly interesting. Great. Thank you. And good luck with uh, your your work and uh, teaching people uh, what's going on and sharing information is something we should all be doing more. So, Suze, uh, a lot, a lot to unpack there with that episode. Um, yeah, but absolutely. I think it's it's super interesting what Sri had to say um, about the CDO role uh, and where that falls in in his organization. Yeah, definitely. It'll be interesting to see if and how other institutions start adopting this role or similar. Yeah, and 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 Paul's approach to to the web presence at the Walker is is super unique and really effective. And it was, it was great to hear his insights on how he makes that work and how um, uh, he enables his team to, to really go out there and, and, and produce some amazing stuff. Yeah, and I'm really interested by these kinds of hirings, like these hirings that are coming from people with media backgrounds and and sort of journalism and and those sorts of spaces. I, we're getting it more and more in Australia. I'm noticing that people coming into the sector are coming from a news and journalism background, which I'm finding a really interesting crossover. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So um, we have some interesting things coming up down the pike for Musea Punks. Um, uh, do you want to do you want to share some some episode or some some news? Sue? Yeah, absolutely. Well, this is not 100% confirmed. So much like Jeff at the start of the show, putting things, you know, putting little bits of spoilers out there and not being able to confirm everything or give us the full detail. We have in November, uh, we are on the program for the Museum Computer Network Conference, um, MCN, which is uh, going to be held this year in Montreal, if I am not mistaken. Um, Yes. Yes. Beautiful it's, time to go to Montreal in November. <laughs> yeah, I'll be coming straight from Australian summer into <laughs> I can't even imagine the cold there. <laughs> it'll be it'll be wonderful and beautiful and and uh and the snowflakes will fall like glistening uh uh light bulbs. <laughs> See now that makes it sound amazing. But yeah, so we will be at MCN, we'll be doing some Museo Punks live sessions, assuming that I can find a way to get over there and I'm crossing fingers that we can. Um, but this will be a really fantastic chance for us to get in depth and have some really good conversations, the sort that we have in the podcast in person. Yeah, definitely. And you know, MCN is is such a great conference. Um it's where Susan and I met. Um, and it's where a lot of relationships are formed. Um, the, the kind of professional relationships that, um, that result in collaborations and partnerships and, and awesome projects. So, um, we'd encourage if, if, you know, if you're a museum technologist or, um, you know, kind of follow along with what we talk about here on Museo Punks, consider, consider MCN, um, as, as a professional development opportunity for sure. 
Yeah, absolutely. And not just technologists. I mean, I think more conservatives. We've got things like the Cooper Hewitt move. Sure. Let's get us more conservatives and curators there so that we can have these kinds of conversations in that environment. Yeah, definitely. So more details about Museo Punks at MCN will, will likely come next month. Um, but, uh, until then, uh, you can follow us or find out, um, more about, uh, this episode, uh, at museopunks.org slash zero six. That's where you can find all the links from the show that we talked about this episode. Um, and you can find me at staticmade.com, uh, or at staticmade on Twitter. How about you, Suze? Uh, yeah, absolutely. You can find me at museumgeek.wordpress.com for the blog and at shineslike on Twitter. And with that, I, yeah, I think we're done. I think we'll call it an episode. <laughs>